0: Welcome to the Sound on Sound Podcast. Welcome to the March issue of the Sound on Sound Podcast, which runs alongside the April issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob Johns. Hi there. We've tried to avoid April Fool articles this time around, as so many of them have ended up as real products. Who can forget our inflatable PA system? And now I find that the scratch-and-listen audio strip is actually a reality, so I give up. Maybe you're just ahead of your time and coming up with these great ideas that people then have to follow. That would be a nice thought, wouldn't it? Hugh and I are getting ready to attend the A to D show in Exeter this coming weekend. And though it will have been and gone by the time you hear this, it was well publicised in the magazine. So if you couldn't make it this year, maybe we'll see you next time. My review time this month seems to have been occupied by mics and monitors mainly, although I did get to try out Phonic's new digital mixer, which can be expanded by adding an I.O. card to allow it to function as a sixteen channel audio interface with sixteen ins and outs. I also took Matt Houghton along to a studio SOS adventure, and you'll be able to read how that turned out in a couple of months' time. Makes a change to have a picture of Matt's bottom under the desk rather than Hughes, really. <laughs>
1: The April issue of Sound on Sound offers the usual eclectic mix, including the very affordable VRM speaker modelling headphone system from Focusrite and the Project Comp 54 compressor from Golden Age. We also sent Matt off again to his local electronics store with the challenge of designing and building a set of drum triggers for under £10. There's also a couple of new articles designed to hone our listening and analysis skills, which Matt can tell you
2: more about now. Matt? Thank you, Hugh. Well, whatever gear you've got, everything in audio production comes back down to your ears and the grey matter that sits in between them. And what better way to train yourself to listen than by analysing the hit mixes of the world's most successful mix engineers? To this end, our mix rescue expert Mike Senior has written two complimentary articles in the April issue of Sound on Sound. The first one takes you through the process of analysing and critically appraising mixes, whether that's simply by listening out for details and thinking about the arrangement, or maybe employing more sophisticated tools and structured techniques that can help you reveal less obvious details. In the second of the two articles, Mike puts his money where his mouth is. Uh, It's a new monthly column called the Mix Review, and in it we'll be reviewing commercial chart hits from a sonic and production point of view, so not just the songwriting like you get in Q or the NME or what have you. In the first mixed review, Mike's studying the debut single of X Factor winner Matt Cardle. Um, he'll be picking out some mixed details from the Bruno Mars hit Grenade. And he'll be taking Ellie Goulding's producers to task. Um, I'll let you read the article to find out why. Uh, The main thing is to get people listening and thinking about what's going on in commercial mixes and to give everyone a chance to wear their own views about these tracks, we'll be putting up a new dedicated mix review section on our forum. In fact, that's just gone live.
0: Back to you, Paul. Thanks, Matt. And now, here's Sam Ingalls, who's got a few words to tell you about the Focusrite VRM system. He was clearly impressed by what it could do.
3: Thanks, Paul. I don't know about you, but my experience of recording and mixing music is that every time you finally feel you're getting to be quite good at it, something comes along and shatters your illusions. The latest thing that's had that effect on me is a small square silver piece of plastic called the Focusrite VRM box. You plug one end into your computer with a USB cable and you plug your headphones into the other end. Now a lot of the problems that face people recording and mixing music at home are either down to poor acoustics or sensitive neighbours and they mean that we're monitoring and mixing either in a very bad acoustical environment, like this one, or on headphones neither of which is ideal. What's more, a lot of us don't really have the choice to do anything about our acoustics, especially if we live in rented accommodation. So what the Focusrite VRM box does, is it tries to make the experience of listening to music on headphones a bit more like the experience of listening on speakers. Focusrite have used convolution technology to recreate the characteristics of a whole range of different loudspeakers, from high-end studio monitors to grot boxes, and they've placed these in a choice of three modelled acoustic environments, There's a professional studio, a bedroom, and a living room. Now, when I was asked to review the Focusrite VRM box, I must admit I thought it would be a bit of a gimmick. But it actually works. And although I don't think it's a substitute for mixing on good speakers in a good room, it actually does something that no single pair of speakers can. It lets you switch instantly between a whole range of different speakers and different acoustical environments, so you can check how your mix will translate to a wide range of different listening situations. And, especially if you're used to mixing on headphones, the results can be surprising.
1: In this issue, Classic Track looks at the recording of Teenage Kicks by The Undertones. We have an interview with Andrew Rose, who talks about restoring old recordings, and there's another very informative mix rescue. We have all our usual door news and user tips, plus an in depth review of Cubase 6. And we also look at Capewalk Sonar 11. M Audio's Venom Synth, RME's Babyface Audio Interface, and a wide selection of sample libraries, processing plugins, and soft synths. But now Jules would like to tell you a little
4: bit about what to expect in the video section. Hi there, as usual, we've got some interesting bits and bobs in the video media section for you. There was a big announcement from Sony who've introduced a new mid-range interchangeable lens camcorder called the FS100, which gives you some of that kind of shallow depth of field look you can get from DSLRs, but with that convenience of a camcorder body and camcorder setup built in dual XLRs, etc. We also have a great article from Andrew Reid of EOSHD.com we talking about DSLR cinematography, how to get the best out of a stills camera when using it to shoot video. Obviously, there's a lot of models out there now that will do this. The Canon EOS range are particularly popular. Panasonic's GH1 and GH2, uh, Sony's newer NEX uh, mirrorless types. It's an interesting piece because he goes into some detail about sort of technical aspects, depth of field, support systems, that kind of thing. But also talks about uh, composing a shot, basic rules for composition, how composition can affect the emotion of a scene with some examples of that. Also a little bit about location scouting and some of the benefits of using such a small camera for a shoot. So it's a really good introduction for anyone who's got a still camera and is looking to use it to make some interesting film work. Thanks very much, Jules.
0: And now on to the news.
3: Sound.
0: Firstly, we'd like to apologise for recent interruptions to the Sound on Sound website service. This has been switched over to a new internet service provider in order for us to further develop and enhance the site, but inevitably there was a little downtime, so sorry again about that. Hopefully, it's all back and happy by now. Steinberg have just released their LoopMash application for the iPhone and iPod Touch. Loop Mash represents an innovative and entertaining approach, or so they say, to mangling beats and tunes using the touch display. The app includes effects, a library of presets, over 250 loops and user-friendly controls. Yet it costs only £2.39 or 3 pounds from the Apple App Store. If boutique compressors are more of your thing,
1: then check out the Lyndall Audio 17X compressor. Lindel Audio was founded by Tobias Lindell, an in-house engineer at the world-famous Bohaus Studios in Gothenburg, Sweden. So designed in Sweden, this 2U compressor limiter is described by its makers as their take on the classic 1176 sound, and it features the same fixed threshold variable input gain arrangement as the Universal Audio levelling amplifier. It also offers the same 5 compression ratios as the original, as well as the hard limiting setting designed to simulate the sound of an 1176 with all the ratio buttons pushed in all at once. Slightly more modern additions include a high pass filter that can be switched into the sidechain signal, and the input signal can also be either high pass or low pass filtered as well. A mix control mixes the dry signal in with the process signal for parallel compression applications, and there's a hardwired bypass option. Carnhill transformers are used for both input and output and there's a three-way switch for selecting between metering the input or the output or the amount of gain reduction. Sounds like a really neat tool this. The Lyndall
0: Audio 17X is set to sell for €2,150. Burl Audio's big news is their B80 Mothership multi-channel converter. This modular device can be configured in a number of different ways where the 4U chassis has 10 slots for converter modules and the modules themselves are available in 2, 4 and 8 channel versions for both A to D and D to A conversion. This allows up to a maximum of 80 channels of D to A conversion or A to D conversion to be fitted in any combination. Each channel of A to D conversion is fed via a BIRL manufactured BX1 transformer to add a little warmth and a little character to the signal as it's being recorded. In addition to the 10-converter module slots, there's another space on the right-hand side of the rack for a motherboard controller card. The DA converters use transformerless analogue stages where sample rates of 44.1kHz to 192kHz are supported. A USB socket allows a connection to a computer to configure the B80, while two DigiLink connectors allow direct connection to an Avid Pro Tools HD core or accelerator card. There's also word clock in and out. Check out the berlaudio.com website for more details. Motu recently announced their Audio Express Audio Interface, a
1: 6-in, six 6-out six device with both USB 2 and Firewire 400 connectivity. The Audio Express can function as a standalone mixer and all the inputs, including the SPDIF input, have their own level control on the front panel. The inputs comprise two mic or instrument signals, two line level signals and a stereo digital input. The included QMix FX software sets the routing of the physical inputs and outputs to your DAW's I.O and also includes some DSP-powered effects that let you apply things like reverb to your foldback mix. There are four balanced line-outs, an SP diff output, and a front-panel headphone socket, and there are also two 5-pin DIN MIDI in-and-out sockets, and the firewire and USB interface, of course. Motu's Audio Express can be bus-powered via either method of connection, provided your computer can supply the necessary current, although a power adapter may also be used. The Motu Audio Express
0: has a US retail price of $449.00. Following the release of their new 25-note keyboard controller a few months back, German audio hardware specialist ESI has released a KeyControl 49XT. This 49-note model is built into an aluminium case, although for our American clients it's also available in aluminium, and is powered via the USB bus, so no power supply is needed. Controls include the pitch-bend wheel, a modulation fader, edit buttons for programming, a sustain pedal input, four programmable rotary encoders and octave up and down buttons. The key control 49 XT, which costs just £111 in the UK, includes a full version of Steinberg's Cubase LE 5 plus Toontrack's Easy Drummer Lite software. It's available via Time and Space in the UK and from selected retailers. Sound, Sound. Sound advice.
1: Okay, Q and A time. Here's the first one. It's a guitar one, so you'll enjoy this, Paul. How can I record
0: distorted guitar chords without them sounding muddy or messy? It's a tricky one, but there are a few strategies you can employ. Uh, The most obvious one is to use less distortion than you might use playing at a gig. And if you want a little more sustain and density, make that up with compression instead. The other thing I quite often do is record the guitar both clean and dirty and then mix the two together. That works surprisingly well. You can add just a little bit of clarity by fading in the clean sound. And something that um, top producers occasionally do and don't tell you about is they actually get the guys to double track the guitar part but the first time through they play only the top three strings and the second time through they play the bottom three strings so that when you add them together you get quite a rich sound but the distortion isn't quite so um, messy as it would be if you distorted everything at once. And you can balance the, the high and the lows a little bit easier that way too, obviously. You can, yeah. But the main trick is just not to overdo it. You've got to think, why is this guitar part in here? Why do I want it to be that distorted? Sounds good. Thank you very much.
1: OK, the next question. When should I use a compressor to level out a signal and when should I use level automation instead? This sounds like one for you Well, I'll give it a go. You could use either. Actually, they do, they do exactly the same thing, to be honest. The compressor changes the level automatically according to the values you set on the threshold, the attack, the release controls, that kind of thing. Um, level automation adjusts the level automatically depending on how you've programmed the automation. A compressor can generally react faster than automation will but if you're just looking for gentle level control and overall control of the average loudness of something then perhaps automation is the easier way to do it. If you're looking for a very fast dynamic control of the level then a compressor is probably the better way to do it. But you can actually use both and I have done and I suspect
0: you have as well, haven't you Paul? Indeed I have. In fact if you automate the levels to get out the worst of the level fluctuations and then route the channel through a bus you can stick a compressor in there And of course, as Hugh says, the compressor reacts much more quickly, so it can take care of individual transients, whereas your level automation it's probably only going to look after individual words or syllables. And of course, you may want a compressor to add character, which is a a different thing to controlling gain, but uh, sometimes you can get a more dense, more vibrant sound by adding a little bit of compression. So I tend to use the two in combination.
1: Yeah. I mean traditionally people would ride the fader which is you know the, the forerunner of automation really uh, you'd ride the fader when you're, you're recording a vocal take for example and you might ride the fader when you're doing the mix and then as you say you'd also use the compressor to give you particular character or to make something a little bit more punchy uh, and that kind of thing so yeah if you use, use both uh, whatever your ears tell you is the right thing for the right track Thanks Hugh Okay last question then How do I know how much reverb to add to the various elements of a
0: mix? I suppose the short answer is that you listen to it. But of course, it's not always that easy because reverb tends to get lost in a mix. Once you add other instruments, what seems to be enough reverb uh, suddenly becomes inaudible. I think that's a good point. Um, You've got to be careful about
1: adding reverb to individual elements because if you get each individual element sounding right, you can then find that you've got too much reverb when you've added everything together. And if you leave it all to the end, you can find yourself having a very flat, uninteresting mix because all the elements end up having the same reverb character to them. So it is very much about using your ears and it's about finding the right compromise between putting each individual instrument in a space, an acoustic space of its own, by using reverb and gelling everything together in a
0: nice way without clogging up all the holes in the mix. I think that last point is a good one because you have to think, why am I adding reverb to this? I mean, In the case of vocals, it sometimes makes them sound more interesting. But with other instruments, it can help set them either forward or backwards in the mix. So if you want something to sit right at the back, maybe give it a little more reverb and roll off a little top. If you want something to sit right at the front of the mix, then maybe a shorter, brighter reverb.
1: Yeah, and don't get bogged down in the concept of reverb as being a cathedral sound. Often what you need is not a long, decaying reverb at all, but just some strong, powerful, early reflections that create the impression of of that source being inside a space somewhere. If you use those kind of early reflection Patterns rather than long ringy reverbs, you'll find the mix doesn't sound muddy and, and cluttered up as
0: much, too. These are the things that often come under the setting of ambience presets. That's right, yeah. I suppose the only thing to say to round that off is that modern music tends to require less in the way of obvious reverb than something, say, from the 70s, where you quite often get big reverb on the vocals, big reverb on the snare drum. Uh, now we tend to go for much shorter brighter things that are almost subliminal
1: yes it does vary with fashion quite a lot doesn't it The different styles of music require different kinds of reverb in general i think the good advice is always to dial in the reverb you think you need and then back it off by three or four dbs because you always end up putting on more than you really need And when you come back and listen to it with fresh ears you'll find that actually you should have put less on in the first place so dial in your
0: reverb think you got it right back it off by a few dbs you won't go wrong that way yeah, and it's certainly worth bypassing it occasionally just to make sure that um, it doesn't make too much of a difference to the mix if it's really obvious when you switch it off there's probably too much, unless of course it's the Martin Walker New Age track in which case you get your mull grips on the uh, decay time control and turn it around an extra three turns. Yes, he's the only person I know with reverbs that run for months rather than minutes. Yeah, in fact the first song he's ever written is still going somewhere <laughs> How cruel,
1: how cruel But
0: fair <laughs> Okay, now it's Tech Talk and this is a very general subject, which is what matters the most when making a good music recording? Is it the environment? Is it musicians? Is it the gear? Is it all of them? I mean, what is it that makes the difference between a bad-sounding demo and a good-sounding master?
1: I remember I was talking to Wes Dooley once. He's the man behind AEA in America, the company that makes the ribbon microphones. And he was talking about the holy trinity of music recording. And his argument is that the three most important things when you come to recording some music is first, the music itself, because if the piece of music isn't very good, there's no point in recording it. Next, the musicians who are playing that music, because if they can't play it very well, it's going to be a bit disappointing. And after that, the space that you're recording those musicians in, because the way that musicians perform in a space is very important, they get a lot of feedback from that. And if the acoustic environment's not right, you're wasting your time again. So... His argument is that those three things, the music, the performers and the performance space, are the three most important things and I think i go along with that.
0: Yeah, I think I would too. In fact, a good mix really starts with a good musical arrangement and that's a skill that tends to have been lost because in the early days of recording, um, you would have a musical arranger with the band to try and sort all that kind of thing out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember talking to a BBC television sound supervisor going back a few years now when Light Entertainment used to have live bands all the time and he was telling me that he'd got a mix going and it sounded absolutely Fantastic, it was brilliant. The band were playing this piece of music, it was great. And when they played the next piece of music, it sounded absolutely awful. And he hadn't changed anything, and the band hadn't changed, the mix just didn't work. And it took him a long time to sort it out and get the the mix sounding right again. And when he analysed it later, what he found was the first piece of music had been orchestrated by an American arranger, and the second piece by a British arranger, and they had totally different styles. And because of that, the band played in totally different ways, and it messed up the
0: mix. So it's very important that you get the arrangement absolutely right. So in pop music, this is choosing sounds that fit together. And I remember talking to one producer who told me that if a song's going to work, you can turn up the drums, the bass and the vocal and your song will be 90% of the way there. Everything else then just fits in the gaps
1: yeah that sounds right to me yeah
0: i certainly work with a lot of bands where you you end up
1: with you know too many guitar parts and they all get in the way of each other too many backing vocal harmonies that get in the way of each other and that kind of thing and often simplifying an arrangement improves the final recording in quite significant ways
0: yeah also picking simpler sounds that take up less of the audio spectrum for example a rhythm guitar part if you play it on a fender telecaster it will be quite bright and it will sit in its own little slot in the mix if you play it with a guitar that has humbuckers on it, on the other hand, you might find it sounds very fat and takes over space that other instruments are trying to occupy. And the same goes for pad keyboard sounds. Mm, some of, of them
1: really syrupy. Yeah, I was going to mention the pad keyboards. That's, that's a very, very good example. So moving on then from the arrangement and the music performers and the space that you're recording in, what are we going for as the next most important thing? Microphones, preamps, converters?
0: For me, I think... The right mic position in the right room is probably the most important thing, because uh, the equipment doesn't make as much difference as you think it does. I I've seen a lot of live recordings made where the singer's obviously been using an SM58, and you hear the live recording, and it sounds fantastic. You know, on TV programmes, the difference between a good singer into an SM58 and a good singer into the top of the range Neumann is it's not really that huge. I'd agree again. So what we're really talking about here is mic stands then,
1: the things that allow you to put the microphones in the right place.
0: Yes, they are very useful, mic stands.
1: <laughs> I use them all the time for um, standing mics. Indeed, I'm looking at one as we speak. So yes, okay, mic placement is the next most important thing, and what about after that?
0: Well again, it's worth reiterating the importance of the room, because if the room has got a bad acoustic, by which I mean excessive reverberation of the wrong kind, then it won't sit properly in the mix and adding reverberation of the right kind on top of that's not going to help it sit in the mix. You need a nice dry, clean in-tune, in-time sound then you can add a little bit of subtle reverb afterwards if you need to. Yeah, that's right. A lot of rooms
1: tend to be a little bit boomy, don't they? Particularly small rooms. The, th- the sort of rooms you find in a bedroom studio or a small project studio, the rooms tend to be physically small, and that tends to give you standing wave problems in the room, so you can end up with quite boomy recordings, or recordings that have kind of resonant honkiness about them.
0: Yeah, and the same's true of badly designed small vocal booths. Vocal booths, yeah, especially, because they tend to be stupidly small, don't they? They do. So part of the job is, is getting the performers to give of their best. I think there's a lot of psychology goes on there, so this is nothing to do with the recording, the mics, the position or the room. So it starts right back with, you know, bedside manner of the engineer.
1: Yes, incredibly important. The whole social skills aspect of a recording engineer and a producer, particularly a producer, is, is fundamental to, to getting a good recording, I think. If you don't get people in the right frame of mind and you don't give them the right kind of encouragement and show the right kind of enthusiasm, all the energy will go out of the recording and you'll end up with a very lacklustre performance.
0: Yes, I think I want to define the producer as the guy who stops the bass player killing the drummer. (laughs) Why would you want to do that? (laughs) What, kill the drummer?
1: No, why would you want to stop the bassist from killing the drummer?
0: Oh, that's for another time, isn't it? It is. Other than that, um, looking after record levels is important. Make sure nothing clips or is over-hot, because uh, intentional distortion is fine, but unintentional distortion just makes things very hard to mix, and it sounds messy. Yeah, this is a perennial problem, and, and we talk about it on the forums
1: all the time actually the whole concept of headroom I wouldn't say it's been lost but a lot of people particularly now they've come to digital as their first recording medium have completely missed the whole concept of headroom it was something that was built into all analogue systems a lot of people didn't even realise it was there because the meters didn't show us headroom whereas with digital systems the meters do show us all of the recording headrooms available and people feel obliged to use it and it causes no end of problems so recording with sensible amounts of headroom and giving plenty of space for your recording makes a very big difference both practically and in terms of the sound quality to how the final result will turn out
0: yeah that's very true and it is psychologically misleading because i'm just looking at the screen on logic now and the minus 12 db point is only about a third of the way up the meter the minus 18 point is barely a quarter of the way up the meter and yet those levels are quite uh, quite adequate for
1: recording that's right i mean when we're doing this podcast now we're talking the meters are just tickling along the bottom you just see the bottom three or four sort of orange strips going there and a lot of people would naturally feel that that means you are under-recording the signal, when in actual fact, it's absolutely spot-on, it's perfect. It gives us plenty of headroom to cope with you know, unexpected transients of me kicking the mic stand or coughing or something like that, and plenty of space to mix signals together once we get into the mixing stage.
0: I think you know when a mix is going to work because you can put up the faders in mono with no processing and it sounds almost right. Uh, if you're having to struggle with lots of plugins and lots of EQ, that means something's gone wrong at source, invariably.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of people do approach it with the idea that they can fix it later on when they get to the mix. You know, they can apply some EQ to fix the fact that the microphone wasn't picking up quite the right sound character and they can apply various processing effects. Well, yeah, you can, but it all ends up taking a lot of time and it takes an awful lot of processing power in your computer. And actually, there's there's no reason to do that. If you've got the microphone in the right place at the beginning, you wouldn't need to do those things, and you could instead concentrate much more on crafting the mix and, and finessing the whole project rather than fixing the project.
0: Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. I mean, there are certain musical genres where the music is effectively assembled on screen, uh, loop-based music and urban music being an obvious example. But if you're recording real musicians playing real instruments... And I think you've got to remember what the term record or record means, which means taking a record of a performance. It doesn't mean recording the performance any old how and then beating it into shape, you know, and making it into something it was never intended to be. You are actually making a record of that performance.
1: Yeah, it's about capturing a performance, not creating a performance, isn't it, really?
0: Yeah, in many cases it is, or certainly with acoustic bands. It's different if you're doing something more creative or more genre-specific but we're talking here about recording traditional analogue people.
1: Yes. So really, coming back to, to answer the question at its core, it's really all about the front end, getting the front end absolutely right, getting the, the right orchestration or the right arrangement of the music, getting it played by people who have practised it and understand it and, and can play it well uh, in tune, in time, all those kind of things, getting the right performance, getting all that together in the right acoustic environment where it sounds right, where the musicians can respond to the room and the sound of the room in a a good way and then getting the right microphones in the right place to capture that accurately and then after that, that is your recording effectively then created and you can mix it and and finesse it in the way you need to to produce a final product.
0: Yes, in fact, in many ways I I think it's almost rather sad that many of the new innovative plugins that we're seeing these days are there to correct faults in the recording rather than to do something new and creative. I mean, we have things to fix bad timing. We have things to fix bad tuning. We have drum replacement software. You know, you shouldn't really need to be doing this. It's nice to be able to if you're in a situation where you've got no choice, but you should aim to get it so you don't have to replace and polish things like this.
1: Yeah, I agree entirely. It is, In many ways, it is sad, certainly for kind of old school recording engineers like like you and me, because it, it emphasizes the wrong kind of approach. In Bob Katz's mastering book, between the chapters, there are little amusing anecdotes and quotes he's put in there. And I was quite shocked the first time I came across one that said we can fix it in the shrink wrap. And actually, I think a lot of people do have that kind of mindset where there's always some process further down the chain that will allow us to fix a problem we've got now. And really, you've got to fix it right at the front. You've got to get it right at the beginning.
0: Yeah. Who was it said you can't polish a turd, but you can dip it in glitter? (laughs) I don't know. And I'm not going there. (laughs) Thanks. Well, if you've got any questions you'd like to ask us, just email them to podcast at soundonsound.com. That's all we've got time for this month, so it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Bye. See you next time.